I'm Jim Chapman here, and joining me today in the studio is uh, Councillor Susan Eagle and Robert Metz, and welcome to both of you. Nice to have you both here. Good morning, Jim. Um, I want to take advantage of my guests, which I often do. I often take advantage of my guests because of their, uh, um, in, in both cases, their long experience of, of um, dealing with public opinion in a variety of guises. There are two, two issues that have come up on the program this morning, and I don't want to talk about the issues per se, but I'll use the issues to illustrate the question here. Uh, earlier this morning, a gentleman phoned and questioned why we can't put the arena downtown location, that whole project, why isn't that on the referendum, he asked. It's just a few months away. We could certainly put it off for a few months. There seems to be a lot of dissension in spite of the fact that there's a lot of rah-rah in the free press and other places. There's still an awful lot of people on the street who are concerned about it. And then later in the program, we talked to Dr. Keith Martin, who is the, uh, one of the candidates, leadership candidates for the uh, Alliance, Canadian Alliance, and mentioned the uh, debate that broke out yesterday on the issue of abortion between Tom Long, primarily between Tom Long and Stockwell Day. Now, I don't want to talk about the arena, and I don't want to talk about abortion. What I do want to talk about is, uh, oh, and, and Dr. Martin's comment that if this becomes, and he repeated it on the show today, if it became an issue that the Alliance would be dead in the water, even the discussion of it the alliance would be dead in the water. The Liberal government has taken the position that problem, what problem? They don't want to talk, nobody wants to talk about it. We're not going to the people, we're not doing anything. Now, I do not want to talk about abortion today, and I do not want to talk about the arena on the program. What I do want to ask each of my guests, though, is, is the, um, when does it become appropriate for our political leadership to turn back to the electorate? When, if, when and or if, uh, it's appropriate, or is it ever appropriate to do that? And I think we, we, have, we have two distinctly different questions here. We've got a major national moral issue, and we've got a local issue that, that involves the disagreement of some Londoners over, you know, should we do this, shouldn't we, where should we do it, where shouldn't we? Um, Susan, you've been involved in, in, in dealing with public opinion for many, many years in the last few years on council as a member of council and dealing more directly with that. Uh, do you, have you ever in your own mind um, come to any kind of decision or conclusion about the point at which a politician or a group of politicians should turn back to the public and say, you know, here's the question. It is a big question. There is a lot of dissension about it. You tell us what you want. Well, actually, Jim, I, I think that you can go to the, to the community, but I'm going to say that uh, in terms of it having to be part of a larger framework because you can take a question. I had a pollster tell me the other day, he said, I can put a question to the public and I can get any answer you want me to get mm -hmm. by the way I put the question. And we've certainly seen that happening in Quebec mm -hmm. in terms of people saying, well, if the question had been put this way or that way, you'd have a different kind of response. So I don't have a problem with going to the public, but I think you have to do it, first of all, um, in a way that, and I, I don't know if you say nonpartisan, but you have to actually honestly want to get the opinion of the community mm -hmm. back on the question and not be trying to use it as a political football one way or the other. And the second thing you've got to do is you've got to be able to provide enough information and education to the community beforehand so that they actually know what the issue is that they're debating and they're discussing. Now the reason that I wouldn't probably in the long run end up supporting a public referendum on something is because I don't think those first two conditions would ever get met. I don't think that, that, that we would ever provide the kind of public forum and documentation and discussion and stuff that needs to really happen for that question to be put. And I don't see us ever having the question put when it wasn't a political football being used by one side or another to try and get the answer that they wanted 
instead of, of really, truly wanting to get public opinion. But you could make the same statement about our, about an election. I mean, you can say the same thing about elections. Uh -huh. There's not enough discussion of the issues. I think that's right. And, and I think that's very fine. true. I think that's very true. Bob, from your perspective, is, is there a point at which uh, it makes sense for the, for the politicians to turn back to the electorate? I only support referendums in two clear instances. One is a constitutional amendment, and the other is a tax increase. And the only people that should be allowed to vote regarding a tax increase are the individuals that are going to be taxed, not the rest of the community who's not paying tax. It has to be the taxpayer. And then municipally, that would be probably the property owner. Um, in any other case, that's why we have politicians for everything else. And they're supposed to tell you what they, what they believe in and what they stand for and what they represent. And you send them to Parliament with that agenda. And there's no way you can get into any of these issues without being partisan. I think it's a everything from the from the convention center to abortion are definitely partisan issues unfortunately they divide people on an almost fifty fifty basis certainly i know from my experience that's what the abortion issue is like and that's one of the reasons that everybody wants to avoid it to even discuss it not even talk about it but um, you know generally plebiscites and referendums uh, to me the number one rule is that whatever the question is the, the answer must never be allowed to violate individual rights you couldn't have a, a plebiscite saying that you're going to discriminate against some racial group or ethnic but group. But you can't or, do that now. The Constitution would forbid that anyway. Well, it's drafted well, today. Well, the but we do it. We do it many ways. We do it through our language laws. We do it through uh, special status for aboriginals. We do it for we do it in a myriad of ways. We just don't call it that. It's still the same thing. Uh, I want to pick up on your on your thing around who who would actually vote if you had a. a if you called a vote on this, I think every eligible voter would have to be able to vote on any kind of public uh, plebiscite that you had. But um, <clears throat> when you're talking about who the taxpayers are, let's not forget that 48% of the city is made up of tenant households, but they all pay taxes. It's just in their rent. And I think we sometimes forget that there are as much taxpayers as anybody else. Um, they don't pay it directly, they pay it to the landlord, and it's actually part of the rental that the landlord is allowed to charge to a tenant. So let's not forget that. But by suggesting it's going to be just... Well, oh, then they would qualify. Then they qualify. But if you're talking about the people who are, who are the taxpayers, are you saying there'd be one vote per household? And you'd be saying two partners had to choose which person voted? I don't think that would work. If you're going to have a plebiscite, everyone who's eligible to vote in this country would have to be able to cast a ballot. Well, then that would include people, for example, I was talking specifically about a, a plebiscite for a tax increase. Um, now, what you're saying is that people who maybe aren't paying a particular tax or who don't pay the property tax should also have a right to vote for, for a tax increase. Well, who doesn't pay a property tax? Well, somebody living in Toronto who's in London, for example. Or somebody who's not from the area or somebody who's... Well, I don't think they'd be on our voters list anyway if they live in, if they live in Toronto. That's quite possible. But I'm just saying, as a principle, that's who has to be the person voting. And I don't think... Like, what we have right now is this broad franchise that we call democracy, where all kinds of people can vote, particularly on income tax issues and things like that, which go beyond property ownership, where basically a majority is trying to vote itself benefits at the expense of what they think is an elite or a rich minority. And you, that's a process you can't allow to go on for too long either. Let's go to the phone. 643-1290 is the telephone number, and Greg joins us. Hi, Greg. Hi, Jim. Yes, sir. Um, and uh, I'm just calling about the idea of the referenda yeah. and how, um, for me, I mean, my view of government is that uh, they're there to represent me. They're there to represent the voters. Yeah. 
and that uh, we've tried the system of uh, believing what politicians say prior to voting them in, and uh, basically it's writing them a blank check for four years. And how long have we been abused by that? Mm -hmm. It's time for um, accountability in government, and a referendum is something that will get direct input from the people rather than simply trusting our federal politicians or our provincial or municipal, whatever. But isn't that a sad yeah. commentary on, 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 on our political system today? Edmund Burke said, the great English parliamentarian, that, that uh, in the course of a debate, and I'm paraphrasing like crazy here, but that uh -huh. he was not sent to Parliament to do the bidding of the people. He was sent to Parliament to exercise his best judgment on their behalf. And that's, you know, if we could trust politicians, that would be great. But, I mean, if you listen to almost everyone, people don't trust politicians because they see it as a career. They get in there and they try to com continue to convince the voters that they're doing the right thing and they'll, they'll speak in purposely ambiguous language, confuse the issues, rather than being simple and clear. And I think that's, they've demonstrated clearly over so long that they can't be trusted, and it's time for some issues to be handed back to the people. Huh? And for some of these issues, I would also contend, too, um, with uh, the mention of even something as contentious as the abortion issue being a 50-50 split. I would say it's far from that in terms of most people don't want... The fact is that there's no abortion law right now. Yes. And I would say that it's probably... 95% of people don't want late-term abortions, don't want the partial birth abortions, and uh, don't want abortion used for contraception. Also, people don't, I don't believe the majority of but we, people... But we don't know that, and that's the whole point, isn't it? We haven't had that debate. Be because well, it has not been put we, back we, to the people. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about abortion because that's not the issue here. But we, but it's, we haven't had that the, debate. It's one of the important issues, though, that the people face. Yeah. And uh, the idea that people can access abortion. No, I don't want to talk about abortion. That's not where we want to well, go. That's not what we're talking about. Greg. Healthcare as well. And what I'm, my point is that people can't get cancer treatment. My mother's on a waiting list now. She's been having angina mm -hmm. and is waiting to see a cardiologist until late September. Yeah. But if you want an abortion that does not treat a disease, mm -hmm. you get it in one to three days. Yeah. Sorry, Greg, go ahead. Greg, can I put a question to you? It's, it's sure. Susan Eagle. Um, sure. First of all, I happen to agree with you that um, that people who are elected are, they, are there to represent the constituency, not manage the constituency. Um, mm -hmm. But the question I want to put to you is, is using, picking up on, it doesn't matter what the question is, but when you have a question for the public, using the example of what went on in Quebec with the referendum, how would you ensure that the question that gets put to the public is such that people have that kind of clarity? Even now, just using your example of the abortion, if the question was, do you support or not support abortion, you'd have, the question could go one way or the other. Um, but the other possibility would be all these other uh, variations that you've just mentioned. H how <coughs> elaborate do you think a question has to be, and how many options do you think the public would have to have, a and what do you feel about the question that was put to the, to the public in Quebec? Do you think it was a fair question that they were asked um, about separation? I think that, that's a really good point, the idea that the question is so important as well. And we can't boil these complex social situations down to a simple yes or no. And also, it's true, I mean, we have to look at if there are aspects of the question that we need to add in. I think 
instead of having a single question for a complex issue, they would need to have multiple questions, sort of look at different situations, what people agree with or disagree with. Well, then we can wire everybody's house up and it's so we can have a vote every day at supper time on the issues of the day. Is well, that going to solve any of our problems? This is a nightmare. Well, Jim, it's not a question of bringing it to supper time every day. We don't need to be an eternal referenda, mm -hmm. except there are major issues that should be brought before the people. So mm -hmm. perhaps, so you're not bothered at supper time every night. Mm -hmm. We could have them limited to uh, one referendum every three, four, six months or a year or something like that. That would be reasonable. The major issues of the day. Yeah. yeah. Greg, I appreciate your thoughts today. Thank you. Good Take to hear care. from you. Robert, you were anxious uh, to I, say something. Uh, people who think that politicians, quote, are there to, quote, represent the voter are misleading themselves a little. First of all, in a sense, they do represent the voter because they got elected for in the first place. Whether it was by a majority or the largest minority, nevertheless, if you had a referendum, you're going to end up with the same result if there was a single issue involved. And the emphasis that people put on clarity for a referenda is kind of humorous to me because we don't give a hoot about who we vote for during a regular election. It's a popularity contest, and that's all it is. People don't know the issues. They don't know where a candidate stands on more than one issue. Um, they vote on single issues, which is disastrous to the democratic process. You have to vote on a, on, on a larger basis than that. But the idea of voting on things, like, for example, with the arena ballot, to me, it shouldn't even be an issue. I shouldn't have to go, go to a referendum to defend my right to keep my money in my pocket so that the local politicians don't go spending it on arenas and things that I, I, don't, I don't even want to see taxpayer dollars spent on, and that's not even a choice being offered me. You know, the word you used earlier this morning, or the phrase, uh, uh, Jim, was, I think you said, uh, after every election, we're held hostage to the city councilor's whims, basically. And, and that's basically where we are at, because we, we don't get to choose between elections. We only get to choose on election day. And so you have to know your councilor, know what they stand for, and basically the only way to measure them is philosophically, because that's the only thing that's going to give you the broadest direction of where that person's going to go. Robert, you've been there, and Susan's been there, too. We've all been there. You know that the great challenge for any, any, uh, um, there's a, I want to find the right phrase here. Any, I wanted to say candidate with integrity, but then that's, I don't want to suggest that other candidates don't have, candidate with credibility. Can I, can I fudge around that sure. a little bit? Somebody who has studied the issues, who really does want to serve, who has a, has a need to serve, um, who understands the, the issues, uh, who goes into a race on that basis, and all three of us know that that's maybe a third of the candidates that show up, um, particularly municipally. They, and the other two-thirds are there for a variety of, you know, not necessarily negative reasons, but because they thought it would be a good idea, it might be fun, I could use the money, whatever. We see that every year. You get 12 and 15 people in a ward race, and you go to an all-candidates meeting, and there's only two or three of them that know, know what the issues are. How do, we, how do we then, how do we take that situation and i'll put this to you susan because you've been through it most recently in the last election here how do we take how do we take that situation where we are very restricted on how you as a candidate can get your information to the public and and robert I'll ask you for a follow-up on this how does the public make that determination about the philosophy of the candidate when you've got three minutes at an all candidates meeting and one little brochure never do it in an election period well you can't you can't do it in an election period and and i think between elections there's another issue 
Um, and that is that when we're sitting at, at City Council, we're getting a lot of information that's coming to us. We're getting a lot of perspectives because we do get a lot of phone calls and, and, and you know, letters coming in or people um, sending missives, sometimes huge reports mm -hmm. to us. We try to plow through all that. But what comes back through the media to the public, and albeit, you know, it's a very small news slot, so you're having to encapsulate what council's done in 30 seconds or 15 seconds or sometimes not at all um, because that issue didn't even make it into the free press or didn't get, didn't get carried on the news. Mm -hmm. And so the, the feedback back to the community, not only about what position we took or even why we took it, very often doesn't get back out to the community. And so it, what, what happens is there's like a headline grabber in terms of, of trying to give just a very, very quick overview of what happened and no rationale. So the community can be left with absolutely the opposite reason as to why council did something. That's incredibly frustrating to me. Um, and I don't know how you get around that. I don't think, though, putting a question out for people every six months or eight months, uh, unless they're prepared to plow through the stuff, too, is going to help. Because if they're just going on the basis of the 30-second clip they got, um, that's, and that's what's forming their opinion, you're not enhancing the public discussion or the public debate. And, and, and I'm a great believer in public debate, both in the, I work in, I continue to work in the church and in the church courts. Uh, we're always fighting for time on the agenda at the church courts to have enough time that there can be a real debate on the issues before people have to vote. And, and that's th that time gets squeezed and people don't get the information and then it does become, um, or can become a knee-jerk kind of thing in terms of the public saying, well, you did that, well, why? I don't understand, and, and off it goes in another direction. Uh, and that's I, not helpful. I agree. I, I think that, you know, between elections is when you do your persuasion. That's when you have to reach out and explain to the public. But during an election, your job is not to go out and persuade people and convince them of things. It's to find people who already agree with you. Because you've got a fixed point in time. It's today, okay, the elections, or tomorrow, or whatever. So you haven't got time to go out and tell somebody that you're the right guy. They've got to sort of understand that already by that point. And so what your, what your objective then is to not recruit people and try to, to convert them into any way of believing, but to find those people who already agree with you. It makes it hugely different, difficult for somebody who's not an incumbent, which maybe explains why incumbents get, particularly municipally, get reelected. Oh, so absolutely. Often. It's very difficult to get the word out, especially if you're uh, the new kid on the block. We've got uh, not new kids. We've got very experienced kids on several blocks with us today. Reverend Susan Eagle and Bob Nets in on left, right, and center. I don't know what any of that meant. It just popped into my head. We will continue our conversation with my guests. Uh, about this interesting issue of at what point do the politicians turn back to the public after the news. Terry is standing by with Sam. Take it away. That's right in center this morning with Bob Metz and Reverend Susan Eaglewood. And we've been talking, if you're just joining us, we've had a very interesting, I think, to me, discussion about the role of politicians vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the electorate and talking about is there a point at which the politicians should turn a question of the day back to the electorate. In, in, in effect, we're talking about referenda here and whether it's appropriate to do them or plebiscites, whether it's appropriate, ever appropriate to do them. And I, I want to come back to, to the, the old Edmund Burke position. And again, I'm paraphrasing wildly here, but where he said that he was not elected to go to Parliament to, uh, to uh, be a spokesperson for, for the people, the, the members of his writing. He was elected to go and exercise his best judgment on their behalf what he deemed to be best in their behalf. Now, obviously, it's a very idealistic position, but it's one that many politicians have claimed to have. the correct position. Well, it's one that many politicians have claimed to have and not had. 
Um, and I want to I want to come back to that in a second and, and, and pursue it a little further with my guests, but I do also want to remind you that the lines are open at 643-1290, and John does join us now. Hello, John. Hello there. How are you? Fine, thank you. That's good. And uh, uh, I just, I just when I managed to get myself off the floor, um, I thought I should give you a call. I can't believe it. I actually agree with Susan Eagle. I couldn't believe it. I was dumbfounded, but um, the uh, the thing that concerns me the most is um, it's okay, John. Today, uh, Jim's in on left, and I'm on center. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I'm just I, I, I'm absolutely amazed at um, the way that we've sort of progressed with our political uh, system. Um, <clears throat> we used to be able to, or we used to elect people to make our decisions for us, but now we second guess our uh, politicians, and I don't think it's so much just our politicians. I think we second-guess everybody now. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that is uh, intrinsically wrong with um, the way we handle ourselves is um, we second-guess everybody, and we come down to the realization that um, I think we want to do things the way we want to do them, and we have to realize that we're in a free and democratic society, and we elect people to uh, make decisions for us. And I think the uh, the key with this whole thing is is instead of having a referendum for these types of things, um, I think we should have a way of um, letting our politicians know that we're not happy with them by um, being able to uh, uh, not kick them out of office, but um, some, some way of them, censuring yeah. them so that mm -hmm. they, we can sort of rein in the reins on them and say, listen, you know, we. We uh, we didn't elect you to spend eight million dollars on a on a I'm just using this as an example eight million dollars on a hockey rink in downtown London. Mm -hmm. um, I, we must realize that we live in a democratic society, and um, there are people out there who are 100 percent behind this rink in downtown London. Yeah. And um, I think for um, the people that are the most vocal are the people that are against it, um, because the people who are for it have it already mm -hmm. and um i think the people that are against it um are a lot smaller than the people that are for it but that makes a great creates a great dilemma for any politician doesn't it susan that you know it's the old thing about squeaky wheel getting the grease there's a reason it gets the grease is because it's squeaking and when you hear from a dozen people on on an issue mm -hmm. uh, that has a lot of impact even though there may be ten dozen people who don't call you who feel the opposite way that, that's true it's it's very often the people who who are upset about a decision who are going to be calling um, politicians about it, and and sometimes too we're we're caught where um, we we can see both sides of something, and yet you have to vote yes or no on something. Um, in terms of the arena, I didn't want the arena downtown, but I did like the idea of us having an arena in the city. But I was left with a choice of supporting it where it was being offered or not, and that's that's a tough choice. Um, but let me say one thing to you, John, and that is when we're at City Hall. And I know it's on Cablecast, and so I know lots of people stay home and watch it on cable. But I'm absolutely amazed in the three years I've been on council at how seldom we have the public sitting in the gallery. True, we hear from people after a vote's been uh, taken on something if they don't like it. But more often than not, that balcony is empty. But you know why that is? I'll tell you exactly why that is. If you go up down there and sit in that balcony as, a, as an interested observer, um, and you do not, for example, have access to the agenda for that evening, 
95% of what you hear is gobbledygook. It's not gobbledygook to you folks because you understand the context. You have the information in front of you. The agenda says this is what's happening. The people in the gallery, they don't even know what you're talking well, literally like to, don't know what you're talking about. I'd really like to find a way for us to, to, to make that more accessible and to have the public there because when the public do show up and sit in the balcony and an issue's on the floor, uh, council really is very conscious mm -hmm. of people sitting in the balcony on that issue. The other thing, too, is that uh, items aren't timed. And so if there's a particular issue and, and we know ahead of time that people are concerned about it, we can ask for that to be on a, at a particular mm -hmm. time on the agenda. But most of the time it's not, and I know that's frustrating, too. And yeah. there's got to yeah. be a way that we try to, to create now, I, more I, visibility there. I'd like to address, John, your point that you think that the majority of people support this arena ballot. I would put it to you. I'd, I would guess 80% uh, of Londoners would be against it, would be against even having an arena. Uh, you're only guessing, Bob. Uh, I'm yeah, basing you are, that, Bob. You're only guessing. You're only yeah, guessing. but my guess, I would say, is more educated than most because I've been involved in about 15 campaigns of a similar nature, all dealing with sports, all dealing with building arenas, all dealing with putting on sports events. I know nobody, except from the people I hear on the radio and in the media, who support this thing. I think it's a great place for an arena. Um, well, I'm not even talking about the location, I'm, which I, I don't even know which location you're talking about. I'm just talking about even spending tax dollars on it. I think most people felt the same way about the convention center and felt the same way about uh, even yeah. the art gallery. Yeah, no, 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 I'd have to disagree. The center today, I don't know if, you paid it, uh, if you're listening to the news, but uh, the amount of money that the city is supporting the convention center is now going down, yeah. and they're yeah. cutting costs. But I think, yeah, but I think there's a great well, difference. Oh, but, but, but there's a great difference. Well, the millions we already spent. There's a great difference between the public attitude towards the convention center and the public attitude towards this arena. Because I was on the air in the middle of both of those things, and I'm here to tell you there was no public support for the for the convention center. That was all politician and it driven. And still got built. And, 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 and it was politician driven. There's a lot of public support. I don't know how much. 20, 30, listen, 40, 50, 60, lot, 70. There but there's was, a lot of support for the arena. There was quote a lot of support for the Pan Am Games that were going to be held here in London in 19. But every single survey that was actually offered to the public, whether a radio station did it, whether the London Free Press did it, whether the government did it, always came up 80% opposed. And the politicians were still telling us that everybody loves it. It's a great idea. Now, how do you explain well, that? I don't you think know? that applies to the arena. I think you're stretching uh, to say the I, arena. I don't know anybody who's interested in it. But we weren't going to talk about any particular issues exactly today, right? Yeah. John, <laughs> I can see, John, I'm on center today. I've got to leave it there, but I do appreciate your call. There you go. Thanks Thank very you. much. Tim's up next. Hi, Tim. Hi, how are you guys doing? Great, thanks. I'm just going to take Susan Eagle to task a little bit about the, the property tax and as far as um, tenants being able to vote in that. Yeah. Um, as a landlord, I, I pay that property tax, whether they pay me the rent or not. If they don't pay me the rent, I can't go back for a rebate on my property taxes. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, and when it's vacant, I still have to pay those property taxes. So I'm, obviously it is built into the rent, and, and it's what I charge. But certainly when, when the tenant hasn't met their obligations, I'm still on the hook for it. And That's just initially, my property taxes have gone up on some properties almost 100% when you count in the property tax increases and the sewer surcharge. Yep. But I certainly haven't been able to pass that along to my tenants legally, so I would, I would say that it's not really, it's just a, a built-in thing, but they're not specifically paying for that. Tim, I'm, I'm talking the philosophy of, of how landlords have rationalized um, the, the, the rent for, for, their, for their tenants, and supposedly it's built into the rent that, that tenants pay. Now, that's a, it's another issue altogether if you've got a tenant who doesn't pay their rent because they're not paying for the maintenance, they're not paying for the heat and hydro, they're not paying for a whole no, lot of he, other things he was that you still have to pay for. In terms for. of a vote. In terms of a vote. But it is built into their rent um, that, that, 
that taxes are part of the, the justification for the rent that they pay. Well, I would you. say if, if they wanted to vote that way, then, then you pay me my, my portion and then pay the other portion to, to the government for that. That would be probably better. If someone's like living in the unit, be more they equitable. pay a portion of that, and then they can go ahead and vote. Other than that, they don't really, as far as I'm concerned, on certain issues, obviously they can vote in, in elections and things like that, but certain sites just involving tax increases, I don't really care for their input personally, and I don't think that they really would deserve that. Tim, my, my point was that we're all taxpayers, and we are all taxpayers. Not if we um, no, we're not property taxpayers if we don't pay our rent, though. But 90% of tenants are paying their yeah, rent. Yeah, but what about the 10% who aren't? But you have but, to have a direct but relationship. But the question I want to raise then is, are we entitled to be voters in a democratic uh, country because we pay um, taxes or because we're citizens? And I think that's a huge issue, and that's probably another topic for another day. I think but so. And it seems to me by one. virtue of being a citizen, that makes you a voter in a democratic society. Tim, I have to leave it there. We've got a lot okay. of people waiting, but that's thank good. you for your Thanks. call. Uh, Stuart's up next. Hello, Stuart. Hey, how you doing? Good, thanks. First time caller, I, I just wanted to say uh, just a couple of things. One is, if we took every issue city council did to our referendum, it would just be paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Because you got uh, two questions. One is, uh, when, when you elect someone, if you don't go out and vote, and if you don't go out and find something about the candidates, mm -hmm. don't even bother. Mm -hmm. Stay home. Yep. All, I, bet, I bet you if you surveyed all these people calling up and raving about the arena, how many actually voted? you know how low voter turnout is? Yes. You know, 70% of people call them probably haven't even cast their ballot. So well, no, I would, I would take you to task for that. I think the surveys that we've done show that the, 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 the listenership to a program like this tends to be more involved okay, than the even, average. Okay, even saying that. So, number one, if you're someone who doesn't bother, doesn't cast a vote, doesn't take interest, doesn't find out anything about the candidates, just, just keep quiet. Yeah. And, and number two... Um, you know, look, look at the old covenant market with all these naysayers. Oh, geez, we want to keep it. It's beautiful. We came to cities. Make Look at the new market. You walk in the old one on a, on a Wednesday afternoon, you, you, you couldn't throw a stone and hit someone. You know? <laughs> you look well, at the last new time I, Last time I was down there, you, you wouldn't hit anybody either. And that wasn't very long ago. And you know, that was like, in the new market. Like I'm saying, look at the new market. It's, it's, I, I think it's a success. I think it was, a, you know, it, it takes time for new business, business to get off the ground. But it's, it's doing quite well. And, and as far as... You know, all these, if, if you had the public, every time you make a big decision, um, you're going to have a whole handful of people, and, and I really think it's a silent minority. I, I really do. I mean, look what happened in the last election. We had that all this property, all this stuff going out there and all this negativity. Look, look how it turned out. No, that's a very good point. Stuart, thanks for joining us today. Take care. Susan's up next. Hello, Susan. Hi. Hi, Jim. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Just a bit of a correction. Um, two callers back. Someone suggested... Um, that he's paying um, property taxes even if he doesn't... Um, Collect his rent. Even if he doesn't have, an, uh, for instance, a unit occupied. But in fact, quarterly, the Board of Control, because I've sat in the peanut gallery and watched them, the Board of Control considers tax appeals. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of commercial tax appeals that are, are granted when I they have a space vacant. Um, so that's an interesting thing. Also, so if somebody, if somebody moves out of the townhouse that I own and it's empty for two or three months at a time, which it has been, you mean I could have appealed that to City Hall? don't know the answer, but I know that any commercial property certainly can, as can uh, institutional. Is there any kind of blend of institutional that pays any property tax? Hmm. For a fact, I've watched the appeals take place. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the agenda is usually an inch and a half thick of listings of, yeah. of the properties. Now, the other point... Um, when uh, apartment buildings are converted to condos, typically, and without variance, the assessment per unit goes down. So, in fact, tenants have always been paying a higher 
proportional property tax than those of us in single-family residential. Why is that, do you think? I don't have an answer to that question. It's been recently, I know that that's, it's been that recently that's the uh, adjusted dramatically. I know in my case, mm -hmm. um, my monthly rent in my apartment that I've been in for two years dropped by almost a quarter. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's unusual to move into a place and see regular rent decreases. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> what a coincidence, because my taxes have gone up by about the same amount. Funny, no? my final point. Um, the convention center, uh, when you say that people didn't vote on it, but in fact, um, the tax dollars spent on it included $10 million from us as federal taxpayers, so it didn't all come from London, yeah. uh, because Tom Hawkins uh, handed over that check, and $10 million came from the province. Yeah because the provincial government handed over that check. Mm -hmm. so Which is also in fact, $20 million at least of equity in the convention center did not come from the property tax base in London. Mm -hmm. Those are my comments. Okay, thank you, Susan. And who's up next? Uh, Ken is. Morning, Ken. Good morning, Jim. Yes, sir. And Bob and Susan. Um, I don't know, because I'm uh, in and out of the car, but I'm just wondering if a uh, uh, thing I want to talk about is the how much party discipline is restricting our politicians. Well, and I don't want to go there. That's really not what we've been talking about. Okay, that's that's but, sort of off down a whole is, other road. But, but, it, but not at the municipal level, and I no. think that point no, needs to doesn't. be made, that we don't have... There may be people who are on council in a municipality who are party members, but that's not a, a feature of a municipal politics. But there's, an, but there's an impetus to move that way, as you well know. There is. Well, in Toronto, they have. And we've seen it in Toronto. Well, I'm, I'm not sure it's that it's a, happening anywhere else. Well, it's I, inevitable because, as we were talking during the uh, commercials there, Susan, about the Elections Commission of Ontario taking over all the municipal election processes. Mm -hmm. And once that starts, you're going to get party politics into it. it just There's no other way you'll no, be able to get into the game. I, personally, I think it's the last thing we need. I, I would agree with you. I think parties should be secondary. But I uh, appeal also to the uh, Alexander Hamilton, and I believe there were the federal papers, mm -hmm. 1815, where he said that uh, political parties are anathema to democracy. And uh, seeing how much, you know, like even now, like at the federal level, the prime minister, and even provincial level, the premier, they have, they hold so much control. Oh, yeah. Um, whether through party discipline, whether through orders in council, um, it is not, it also, you know, we're, you're talking about how our politicians represent us. Um, not as much as they as we, I'd like them to. Yeah, exactly. Ken, thanks for the call. You're welcome. Appreciate it. And I think there's there there is an example there that that is all instructive to observe, and that is the difference between the power wielded by a prime minister or a premier and the power wielded by a mayor. There are some very powerful mayors in this country, but their power derives from their ability to convince other people to follow them, rather than their ability mm -hmm. to order people around. And and to me, it's always been fascinating to watch. You see a mayor like Mel Lastman or Hazel McCallion. Um, people like that who have maintained a very strong power base for a considerable period of time, obviously they are meeting the people's needs because there is no requirement or responsibility for any council member serving under them to support the mayor on anything that you don't feel like supporting them on, unlike it, at, in, the, in, the, in the legislature or in parliament. And, and Jim, at, at council level too, there's a, a pretty free-wielding debate that goes on around issues, and you can't take council at any time and say, uh, this is the block that votes this way, and this is the block that votes another way. I've been quite... You can, quite however, sometimes say this is the blockhead who votes this way. <laughs> we have been able to do that on occasion. But I've been quite amazed at, at, at council, uh, again, in, in listening to the debate and seeing people take sides on debates that I might not even have presumed they would, and people voting, sometimes they'll vote together on one thing, and the next issue that comes up, they're, they're miles apart on it. And I think, again, that's the kind of debate that you want to encourage and have 
and we do have it at the municipal level. I, I think you're right at the provincial and federal level. That that's a whole other kind of yeah, scenario. It disappears. I think there's a reason for that. We too. have to disappear sure. for just a moment. We'll be right back. Matt's with us on this edition of Left, Right, and Center. We're just about out of time, and traditionally what we try to do here is to give each of our guests uh, 30 seconds or so to kind of sum up their position. If they've had, if they've had a position during the day, I think we've, we've agreed on a lot of things today, the three of us, and that's nothing wrong with that either. Um, Robert, I'm going to ask you again to, to uh, perhaps summarize, and I'm going to come back to my original oh. question, which was, is there a reasonable point at which politicians should turn back to the electorate and say, what do you want us to do? I don't think politicians should have any powers or rights that, that we as voters and individuals do not have. And for me, a measure of good government has always been, if I can't do it legally and it wouldn't be appropriate, then it shouldn't be appropriate for the government either. If I can't go to my neighbor's house and tell him that he can't read this or read that, I can't have a referendum saying that we're going to have censorship either, because I wouldn't feel good about that. I would never go into my neighbor's house and say that because you want an arena, I'm going to stop you from spending money on it. I just want him to respect my right to spend my money where I want, and that he hasn't got the right to vote on what to do with my money. And that's basically the principle that we have to work on. And, and I think we're, we've got a bit too much democracy in society today and not enough freedom, and I think we forget that democracy does not work in the system outside of freedom where everybody's just voting money out of the pockets of their neighbor. Susan, I put the question to you too. Is there a point at which the politician should responsibly turn back to the electorate and say, what do you want? Um, in theory, I think we have an ideal that, that at some point that ought to happen. Um, but again, I think it's very, very difficult to ever create the kind of circumstances where you would be able to provide enough information and to step back and make the question objective enough and impartial enough that you could truly facilitate that public debate. I think we all kind of yearn for it as an ideal and we look back to the Greek city-states where the where everybody got to vote on everything. We even look at the native communities where people come together and work for consensus, but they take days. And I think we have this yearning for it, but I think practically it would be very, very difficult to implement in such a way that it wasn't getting abused or, or manipulated to achieve a certain end. And so that's my struggle. My thanks to both our guests today, Reverend Susan Eagle and Bob Metz, on this edition of Left, Right, and Center. Join thanks us again too. next week, same time, same station, and we'll have some more interesting guests and interesting things to talk about. Speaking of interesting guests, Bud Polhill, our automotive expert, is standing in the wings, ready to join us on Ask the Experts right after.